Hi everybody. It has been a really long time since my last recording. There are many different reasons for that, including the fact that my last recording definitely took its toll on me. But now that I've started again, I'm determined to make sure that there is never such a long gap again. Today, I thought I'd talk about something that changed my life forever back in 1978. I had been attending interviews to be an officer in the Grenadier Guards from the age of 14 onwards. It had been a long-term ambition of mine. After I finished my A-levels at Charterhouse, I started teaching as the junior master at St. Peter's Prep School, where I'd spent my primary education from the age of 8 to 13. I mention this because my sponsor into the Grenadier Guards was the headmaster of St. Peter's, the late Mike Fairbrother, a much-beloved figure about whom I'll record a separate podcast at some point in the future. However, Mike had hired me on the understanding that if my military career suddenly took off, I would have to depart the fix and head off into the army. I should perhaps add that my father had been in the 12th Lancers during the Second World War, but Mike had played an unusual and interesting role in the Grenadier Guards at that time and had convinced me that I should consider joining his regiment. So some eight months after I started teaching at St. Peter's, the call came from the regiment for me not to go to Sandhurst, which is what I had rather expected, but to start my military career at the Central London Recruiting Depot and to sign up as a recruit guardsman. I was to attend Brigade Squad. By modern standards, Brigade Squad was something of a historical anomaly. In reality, the eight-week course that I attended at the Guards Depot Purbright was one of the most intense periods of military training of my entire career, and a life-changing event for me. The idea behind Brigade Squad was to help potential officers understand what it meant to be a Guardsman. And so we were actually recruited into our respective regiments of the Foot Guards and the Household Cavalry as recruits. And we were treated in the same way as all other recruits, in that we were given a rail warrant to get to Purbright, where we had to report at the railway station at a particular time on a particular date, where we found a four-ton truck waiting for us. We were all potential officers into the Household Division, so we turned up at Purbright Station wearing suits and ties, some of us carrying umbrellas, with suitcases full of personal possessions, only to be unceremoniously put on the back of the four-tonner and whisked off to the depot, where we were met by the late, then-Sergeant Wally Marjoram, who in later years I worked very closely with and became very fond of. Gold Sergeant Marjoram, as we were told he was, was the squad sergeant for Brigade Squad 21. We were a motley crew of assorted public schoolboys, many from Eton, but also from a handful of other public schools around the country. Some of us had never made a bed, never polished a pair of shoes, never ironed a shirt, and some of us had no idea what military life was going to be like. But we all knew that we wanted to be officers in our respective guards or household cavalry regiments. And so there we were, lined up one April morning for the start of Brigade Squad 21. Much of the accommodation at the Guards Depot Purbright was quite modern for its time. There were buildings with shared rooms, perhaps two or four to a room, with modern bathrooms. But not for Brigade Squad. We were quartered in what is known as D-lines. 
Back in the late 1970s, D-lines were like something from a historical movie. They'd been built, I suspect, prior to the Second World War, and were a series of Nissen huts, each hut split into two parts, with basic shared ablutions in the middle. Each part effectively a dormitory, with, so far as I remember, about ten people in each half, with very old-fashioned metal army beds and rather hard horsehair army mattresses. One metal locker beside the bed and nothing much else. No privacy, no curtains, no bedside table, no personal reading lamp or power socket, just a basic barrack block. We went to be allocated to our bed spaces. We were all a little nervous. In came the platoon staff, St. Marjoram Grenadier Guards, Lansant Jones Coldstream Guards, Lansant McGowan Scots Guards, and trained soldier Saunders from the Welsh Guards, our barrack room instructor. Perhaps stupidly, I assumed that as one of only two grenadiers out of a platoon of 20, I would be able to approach St. Marjoram for advice. Early on, he made it very clear that he would remain beyond reach. In fact, I only dealt directly with him when I had annoyed one of the two Lansants enough for them to elevate my misdemeanor to his level. Not something, by the way, to be encouraged. Of the 20 people on the course, I did come across one or two of them later in my career, but not many. And it was a great surprise to me that only a handful of the 20 actually made it as far as the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst for officer training. Brigade Squad, I quickly learned, was all about knocking the stuffing out of us and then building us up again from scratch. This was achieved by what would today be considered some fairly extreme discipline. Massive amounts of shouting and swearing often delivered inches from our faces. A huge amount of running up and down the sand hill and lots and lots and lots of drill. It was more than just a means of instilling in us a sense of what it meant to be a guardsman. During those eight short weeks of Brigade Squad 21, we actually achieved all of the same training objectives that every recruit guardsman would achieve during his 14-week basic training course. I did have some amusing moments during Brigade Squad, admittedly not that many, but there were definitely a few. In a bizarre way, my first afternoon became quite amusing. My section lance sergeant was Lancelot McGowan, who was a large man, whose ability to run and keep up with the squad amazed me, given the size of what I assume to have been a beer belly. But on that first afternoon, I was still wearing a black tie, having only recently attended the funeral of my mother. I don't want to make this another sad podcast, so more of that story another time. Suffice it to say that there I was, standing in my half of the Nissen hut, sorting out my belongings, when Lansan McGowan came up to me and bawled, Gottlieb, why are you wearing a black tie? Has your mother died or something? To which I replied, uh, yes, Lansant, my mother died actually quite recently. Oh, he replied in a rather shocked voice, and immediately stormed out of the room. As you might imagine, this left me slightly wobbly, but I managed to keep control, and we were then all called out to form up outside the hut, still in our suits. As we were rushing out, in the doorway stood Lansant McGowan, who told me to stay in the room. 
I thought, oh no, what have I done? As soon as it was just me and the Lansant in the room, he walked up to me and said very calmly, I want to apologize. I should not have shouted at you in the circumstances for wearing a black tie. However, do not think for one moment that you will be treated any more gently than anyone else on this squad. But please accept my condolences. I'm sorry for the death of your mother. He took a deep breath as I started to fight back the tears and burst into his official shouting voice. Now get out of here and join the rest of the squad. Move! A long time later, I thought about all this and realized that it must have been quite difficult for Lancelot McGowan to come out of character for those few seconds and pass on to me his apology and his condolences. From that day onwards, I didn't wear my black tie again, and I'm sure my mother would have understood my reasons. Drill, it turns out, is something that I loved to do from the very beginning. On Brigade Squad, we did a lot of drill. I loved it right through to the end of my military career. I became what is affectionately known as a drill pig. I don't really know why I like drill so much. I suspect it was the simplicity and the ability I discovered to just get into a mental zone where I didn't have to think about anything except the words of command, the straightness of my back and my neck, the swing of my arms, the height of my knees, the length of my pace, and the contact of my metal heel on the drill square. When we did long periods of drill back in those days, I would be mentally miles away, thinking about all sorts of things, while my physical body was being rafted around the drill square like there was no tomorrow. As Brigade Squad consisted of only potential officers, we ended up being on the square long before all of the other training platoons, and after they had all left. We often drilled during their lunch breaks. And this, I realized again much later, was a deliberate ploy. Not only were we being molded into potential officers of the household division, but this was an opportunity for all the recruits into the household division to see their future officers being rifted around the square and being put through their paces every bit as much as they were. In some cases, more. This common shared experience was what created the special bond that I later experienced between an officer of the foot guards and his guardsmen. No matter the difference in our upbringing and our social circumstances, during the years in which Brigade Squad operated, every single person in the household division, whether a guardsman, a trooper or a general, had been through that same common experience of depot life. What I did not enjoy about Brigade Squad was the physical fitness training. At Charterhouse, I'd never been particularly fit. I played the minimum amount of sport and had my first taste of drill in the combined cadet force back then, but physical training was never my strong point. Brigade Squad was my fitness nightmare. As a recruit guardsman, I didn't have the luxury of saying that I wasn't feeling well or that's far enough, Lansant, can I stop here? None of those types of excuse were an option at all. My body belonged to the army and its representatives, and if the army wanted me to run, I ran, whether I wanted to or not, whether I could keep up or not, whether I was healthy or sick. Those of us who were not particularly fit 
and there were one or two of us on Brigade Scott 21, ended up running more than anybody else. Much of it up and down Purbright's infamous sand hill. The sand hill itself deserves a bit of an explanation, because although quite steep, it wasn't particularly high, maybe 30 metres from top to bottom. The problem which will be understood by anyone who's a runner is that if you're running up a hill made of soft sand, you don't really get very far for the amount of energy that you have to put in. And so to run up that 30 metre sand hill was probably the equivalent of a 300 or 400 metre run on the flat. The other problem with the sand hill was that we didn't run up and down it in PT kit all the time. More often than not, we would get back from the drill square in our immaculately pressed uniforms and beautifully polished boots. And if we hadn't performed well on the square, it would be straight up the sand hill for 20 minutes. In fact, we were on the sand hill in any and all forms of uniform on a daily basis. We carried weapons, packs, equipment, logs, and even each other up and down that bloody hill. The sand hill did its job, though. In eight short weeks, I went from a slightly flabby, unfit late teen to a fit, healthy, and sprint-capable young man. My self-discipline hardened by forcing myself time and time again to turn round at the bottom and start heading up the hill. The other aspect of physical fitness at the depot that took me by surprise was the Guards Depot assault course. Every military unit around the world has an assault course. Every part of the British Army has an assault course too. But the assault course at the Guards Depot was infamous for its length, the number of obstacles, the gap between obstacles, and the terrain it covered. Constructed in a hilly woodland over a distance of perhaps two kilometres, with obstacles every 50 to 100 metres or so, the course tested all those who used it, and it's more than 28 obstacles. Having been on it often, not only during my eight weeks on Brigade Squad, but many years later as a member of the Guards Depot staff, it was one of the hardest assault courses that I had ever seen. One obstacle in particular was called the Queen Mary. I doubt anyone who's been on it will ever forget it. It consisted of a swinging rope over a pool of water kept the consistency of a muddy bog. The rope was at a length that made it very difficult to get properly onto it when you jumped forward to catch it, and it swung not quite far enough to get you over the low wall at the other end without a supreme effort to do so. It was often the case, and of course deliberately so, that we would land in the muddy bog under the Queen Mary and that was fine. You just go round and try again. But of course the water and the mud would make you significantly heavier. So the amount of energy that you had to use when you swung on the Queen Mary a second time was just that much greater. I guess it was called the Queen Mary because it was the shape of a large cruise ship. You would approach it from the top of a hill, and there was this massive concrete frame with a steel bar holding the rope. I can still picture it now. Of course, back in those days, health and safety was a different beast to that which it has now become. So Brigade Squad, perhaps more than the other training squads, would be inundated with non-commissioned officers and trained soldiers throughout the length of the assault course 
throwing thunder flashes at us, the potential officers. They would fall between our feet and in front of us and behind us. Thunder flashes don't generally do any harm, but they are extremely loud and they do create a pressure wave and a lot of smoke and a big flash. And that's what they're designed to do. But when you're focused on getting to the next obstacle with all of your kit on your back, climbing up some rope or net or wall, jumping down some incline, diving through a window, when you've got these bangs going off left, right and centre, it's really not something that helps. I do remember that I used to enjoy finishing the assault course. It was a very satisfying feeling. Unless, as would often happen, we formed up in a squad at the end and were told that we hadn't done well enough and therefore had to go back to the start for another 20 minutes of hell. One of the highlights of Brigade Squad was our final exercise, which took place up in Norfolk at the Thetford training area. I can't remember exactly how long we were up there, but it was at least a week. I know this because we were awake for almost the entire time. It consisted of a series of platoon manoeuvres, attacks, digging defensive positions, full-scale trenches with overhead protection, always firing blanks, of course, with a huge amount of physical exercise. There was one particular occasion after we'd been awake for several days, and I had blisters on my hands from digging, on my feet from running, which I will never forget. By this point on the exercise, I was on autopilot for much of the time, just continuing to do as I was told, not complaining, not getting upset, just doing the best I could to survive and complete the course. On this particular run, we had gone quite a long way with all of our equipment. I was in the middle of the squad in the right rank, and we were basically running down a quite windy country road. As we were running along, I was feeling more and more faint and out of breath, and was just about managing to keep up with the cadence of the run, when suddenly, without realising it, I must have passed out, because the next thing I remember was a prickly sensation all over my body. As I started to wake up, I realised that I had run right into the middle of a very sharp hedge. Basically, I hadn't managed to turn the left-hand corner, had separated from the squad, and kept on running in a straight line. Despite being stuck in the middle of a hedge, I was still trying to run. With hindsight, this highly amusing moment, which was the source of many verbal pokes over the following days, both from my colleagues and the staff, was one of several defining moments for me. Rather than collapse, give up, or simply seek a rest, my subconscious had taken over and was forcing me to continue. Exactly one of the things that this type of military training is all about. I do have one much-treasured photograph of Brigade Squad 21 assembled in number two dress for our squad picture. When I look at that photograph today, I hardly recognize myself. I see a timid, shy version of myself desperately trying to grow a moustache to make up for my lack of sporting prowess, but actually failing to do so effectively. I look at the others in the squad, not all of whom are with us today, one of them was desperately badly injured during the Falklands War. Another one of them went on to become a senior officer, far exceeding my career arc. But the majority of them 
didn't end up even joining the army. Brigade Squad showed them what a military life was like, and they opted out. At the end of Brigade Squad, we had a passing out parade in front of the Commandant of the Guards Depot. We graduated as trained soldiers with the same basic military training qualifications that Guardsmen have on joining their battalions. The difference with us was that those of us who decided to continue on went in dribs and drabs to the regular commissions board at Westbury in Wiltshire to do selection for officer training at Sandhurst. Prior to my trip to Westbury, I received a letter from the Ministry of Defence telling me they had awarded me a university cadetship, conditional on passing officer selection. This came as a very pleasant surprise. It meant that I would immediately be given a probationary commission prior to getting to Sandhurst as a second lieutenant, known in the Grenadier Guards as an ensign. I felt a strange sense of disappointment when my discharge papers as a trained guardsman arrived. All that pain, and were I not to pass into Sandhurst, for what? However, before leaving the guards depot, I had asked the advice of then-captain, later colonel, Simon Faulkner of the Lifeguards, platoon commander of Brigade Squad 21, about the regular commissions board. Simon had told me that my weakness would be my self-confidence and determination, and that there would be one obstacle that they always include on the selection assault course which might catch me out. He told me that at some point I would come across some sort of window, which, without hesitation, I should dive through head first, even if I couldn't see the other side. I took that advice on board. Apparently, I answered all the questions appropriately during RCB. I did all the little leadership exercises successfully, and then it was time to do the assault course. I took a deep breath and remember running towards what looked from a distance like just another wall to climb, but I saw a square hole in the middle of the wall. I thought to myself, aha, there's the window. I couldn't see what was on the other side of it at all. It looked as if the ground fell away from the wall because I couldn't see anything. So I just ran towards the wall launched myself straight through the window head first and did a forward roll and then carried on. Of course, the assault course was not very long at all, maybe 10 obstacles. Now, I can't say for sure, but I believe that it's highly likely that it was that window that carried me through and enabled me to pass the regular commissions board. After a few days, I received not only my results from the regular commissions board, but also another longer letter from the Ministry. By this time it was late August, and I was due to start my university course in early October. The letter told me to report to Victory College at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst on the 3rd of September. A second lieutenant on probation, I was to be in some company of pre-university course number 10. The letter also told me that my course would last for just three weeks, and that on successful completion of the course, I would join my University Officers Training Corps in London and attend the weekends there during each university term. In addition, I was to join my regiment under the direction of regimental headquarters for at least one month each year, preferably during the long summer vacation, to undertake regimental duty. Furthermore, prior to graduating after three years, 
I was to do an adventure training course in my own time out of a list of possible courses run by the Army to prepare myself for the physical and sporting life of military service. The best news of all was that as a probationary second lieutenant, I would be in immediate receipt of a salary. So unlike my fellow students who would have to rely on either parental financial support, a government grant, or odd jobs that they could get during university, thereby just about covering the cost of basic living expenses, I was going to find myself on a salary. What a relief that was. So I hope this podcast has given you some indication of life on Brigade Squad and the first months of my military service. I deliberately haven't mentioned very many names, but would love to hear from any former members of Brigade Squad 21 who may listen to this podcast. Although in some ways I wish that my son Daniel had had a chance to experience what I experienced on Brigade Squad, I totally respect and understand his choice not to join the army. In part, I was relieved, as it's a very different army today than it was in 1978. But even if Brigade Squad had still been functioning if Daniel had gone into the army, modern society would never have allowed many of the things that were done to us to happen today. And the dilemma is that without such things, many of the important lessons that we learned would have been lost. My self-confidence, much of my leadership ability, my empathy and understanding of those in more difficult circumstances than my own, stem in a large part from that eight-week period spent at Purbright. It changed me as a person totally. It enabled me to pass the regular commissions board. It prepared me for my military service in so many different ways. Having come from a somewhat sheltered background, it also gave me a basic introduction to hardship and stress, something that I still rely on today. So, dear friends, it's time now to say thank you very much for listening once again, and I promise not to let so much time pass before returning to my microphone and giving you another installment from my collected tales of a complicated life. Take care of yourselves and each other, wear a mask, stay healthy, and be safe.